0: We're up to Mishnah 2.15. Uh, This is going to be a continuation of the characters that we saw in the previous Mishnahs. Previously, we saw about Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, the titanic towering figure of the end of the Second Temple era, and his five primary students. We learned about the mission that he sent, the multiple missions that he sent them uh, to embark upon, find out what's the proper path, what's the evil path to avoid. And now we're going to learn about these five students and their take, that kind of the next generation of what's called the Tana'im, the rabbis that comprise the Mishnaic era. This is about a hundred or so years before the Mishnah is going to be codified and formalized and completed. And these five students, each of them, are going to play a big role uh, in this kind of turn of history, turn of the page of history time for the Jewish people, temple's destroyed, Rabban Yohan and the old guard is going to be passing on, and there's going to be some major pressing areas uh, that, the, that the sages are going to need to uh, take care of because the nation is really at a very vulnerable state. Like we said, the temple's destroyed, many, many Jewish communities have been ravaged by the Romans, people are scattering, uh, people are fleeing, and there's a group of rabbis who are in Yavne, the city of Yavne on the, on the coast, the city that was spared thanks to the intervention of Rabbi and Zakkai. And at the helm of these sages are the first two rabbis we're going to meet here, Rabbi Eliezer and Rabbi Yehoshua, along with the third head of the triumvirate, Rabbi Gamliel, who we actually don't see a mission of him. He's going to be the Nasi. Uh, so let's read the Mishnah quickly, and then we'll go a little bit of this uh, backstory of this fantastic, fascinating, wonderful, tragic character, Rabbi Eliezer ben as Rabbi Eliezer Hagadol, alternatively called Rabbi Eliezer. Okay. Heyam Amru Shler They each said three things. Rabbi Eliezer said, Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Yehi kvod havercha, chaviv alecha teshulach. Let the honor of your fellow man be as dear to you. Cherish the honor of your fellow man, Tishalach as your own honor. First thing. And don't become prone, don't become easily angered. And repent one day before your death. And you should warm yourself opposite the fire of the sages, but be cautious of their glowing coal that you do not be burnt. Why? For their bite is the bite of a fox, and their sting is the sting of a scorpion, their hiss is the hiss of a serpent, and all their words are like coals of... Fire. These are the three things the Rabbi Eliezer says. If you count them, it seems like a great deal more than three. We'll see that about that in a bit. But this individual, this Rabbi Eliezer, is one of the very interesting personality and storyline uh, and very tragic, as we will see. Uh, he was the son of an exceptionally wealthy person, Hortinus, and he did not grow up with um, a lot of traditional Torah learning, which maybe isn't. Endemic to the time We know that the second temple was destroyed According to Jewish sources Because of baseless hatred And when we read about the time We read about there's so many different factions Amongst the Jewish people And so many different priorities And values dominating the society And, and the, the notion That there's going to be a young student Who's not going to be given a traditional A, a robust a traditional Jewish education Was in previous generations unheard of and this Rabbi Eliezer, his father's very wealthy. And he doesn't want his kid to go to yeshiva, go study, go to college, or I don't know, go, go become an engineer, become a physician. Don't waste your time with Torah. That was his father's attitude. And at, at an advanced age, he was 28, and he started to study Torah. And kind of similar to Rabbi Akiva's storyline, Rabbi Akiva's gonna be a contemporary, really more connected to the next generation. But from that same time period, he too is gonna to come to Torah at a later time in life. So he is going to travel to Jerusalem, Rabbi Eliezer, to study by Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai, at the time where Jerusalem was still the center of the Jewish nation. And Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai was the greatest sage. And sometime later, his father is going to get wind of his son's plans and his son's career shift. And he's going to travel to Jerusalem and he's going to disown him. You want, you want to choose this path? Okay, sure, you choose this path but you're not going to benefit, I'm going to disown you from my estate, you're not going to have anything. And there's an amazing story brought down in the Midrash about what happened. Uh, There was a convention of all the greatest sages and all the greatest uh, philanthropists of the Jewish nation. Uh, At the helm was sitting Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, and amidst this convention, Hortonus, the father of Rebelezer, is traveling to Jerusalem to once and for all disown his son. And they tell Rabbi Zakai, Oh, you know, I was coming to town. is the father of your student Rabbi Eliezer, great. He says, Okay, we're well, we going to make him a spot here at the table. Make him a spot at the table. And then Rabbi Zakai tells his student Rabbi Eliezer, I want you to give a lecture. I want you to speak to the assembled. Speak about words of Torah. And he initially refuses. He says, How could I possibly say something in your presence? Uh, what am I? What, what Torah knowledge do I have compared to you? Uh, in fact, the more Torah I learn, the more I forget. And Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar says, no, no, you're the opposite. You're like a spring that uh, despite you, there's, you know, you, you're you producing more water than you're absorbing. Finally, he agrees to give the lecture. He gives the lecture and the, the Midrash describes the kind of the superlative, spiritual ecstasy that ensued. There's like those flashing lights and it was like kind of reenactment of the Sinai experience and his face was glowing like the face of Moshe and people inside did not know if it was day or it was night. It was so dazzling. And uh, at the end of the speech, Rabbi Yocham Zakkai says, praiseworthy are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that you are there Descendant, like you are the progeny of Abraham Isaac and therefore we can give them praise. Like, wow, look what you guys produced. And then his father is there Privy, and He realizes his son. He says, no, 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 no. Praiseworthy am I? This is my son. And of course, the tide is changed, and he uh, does not uh, disown his son. Uh, he ends up marrying into the most prestigious family in the nation, uh, the son, the daughter of the previous nasi, the previous prince. Uh, his name was Rabbi Shimon Ben Gamliel. He was one of the people that were executed by the Romans. We told a story a few weeks uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, he was he was considered like the standard for the king, a direct descendant of Hillel, uh, from the line of the Nasiim, from the line of the princes. And his daughter married uh, Rabbi Eliezer. Now his son, which is Rabbi Eliezer's brother-in-law, is Rabbi Gamliel, who was the current Nassi. and. Uh, in Yavne, in the city of the sages, uh, there was three leaders, like we said. The greatest Torah sage was unanimously, agreed, was Rabbi Eliezer. And then there was uh, Rabbi Gamliel, and Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Gamliel was the Nasi. He was the kind of the, the titular head of everyone of the Jewish nation and of Sanhedrin that was stationed in Yavne. But everyone agreed that he was not as great of a Torah scholar as his brother-in-law, the great Rabbi Eliezer. Now, the story that's most famous, the most famous story about Rabbi Eliezer is, I think, the most tragic or maybe arguably the most tragic episode in in the whole Talmud or in that whole era, and that was the great, grave disagreement that befell these two brothers-in-law and uh, the events that ensued. Uh, And this is a very famous story, but I think it's worthwhile to retell it, even though we've told it here in the past. It's worthwhile to retell it because I think it does shine a light on what were the priorities of the nation and what were the characters that led them. So the Talmud tells us in the book of bab page 59, that there was a question brought before the Sanhedrin and Yavne regarding a certain serpentine oven Uh, there was an oven the oven got broken and it was a certain serpentine shape and they replastered it together with a very kind of once in a million kind of question with respect to the laws of purity and impurity for such an oven that was the question and there was a debate as there always is whenever the rabbis are convened there was a debate that everyone's presenting different arguments for their side and Rabbi Eliezer, he's convinced one side. He says it's 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 pure. Uh, the rest of the rabbis disagree. They say it's impure. They take a vote, and they vote in favor of the majority that it is indeed impure. And this is indeed we see in the Torah. We've read it uh, recently in Deuteronomy when you have a question, when you have an uncertainty, when you have a dilemma. When there is a halachic matter that's up in the air, you go to Jerusalem, you go to the temple, you go to the Sanhedrin, where the Sanhedrin usually was seated at the temple, then they moved. You go to the great sages, you ask them the question, they vote, and that is, well, first they debate, they deliberate, they, they, they argue the merits of, the, of, of both sides, and then they take a vote, and then we follow the vote. And even if the vote is wrong, we follow the vote nonetheless. Uh, so that seems to have applied here as well. They had a question and they took a vote and they followed uh, the opinion of the majority. Uh, however, Rabbi Eleazar did not concede. He did not give in and he kept on arguing. And he started pulling out all these supernatural proofs, a series of four of them. And he announces to the assembled, he says, if I'm right, let this carob tree uproot itself and Miraculously, everyone's like just bamboozled. The carob tree uproots itself and replants itself 100 paces away, and they say to them, "Sorry, that's not a proof. That's not a, that's not a valid t- or proof." Well, if I'm right, let the let the stream here start streaming the opposite direction and miraculously it just turns around and starts heading the other way. Well, that's not a proof. If I'm right, let the walls of the base measures, the walls of the house of scholarship cave in. They start caving in, and then they're about to collapse. And Rabbi Yehoshua, another one of the people here, he starts rebuking the walls and telling them, listen, the rabbis are having a debate. Why are you getting involved? And thus, the walls just ended up permanently, says the Talmud, half falling down, but half, but not not fully. And the, Re- the Talmud explains, well, it didn't want to go straight back up because that would be in front to Rabbi Yehoshua. It didn't want to fall completely down. That would be a front to Rabbi Yehoshua. So it just stayed perpetually on an angle. And finally, uh, he pulls out wild card, if I'm right, let heaven decide, and a booming voice, everyone hears a prophetic voice from heaven, why are you arguing with Rebel don't you know, the halacha follows him in every time, in every instance, and they said, I'm sorry, the verse tells us, we'll read it in a few weeks in Deuteronomy, Lo the Torah is not in the heavens, that is not a valid proof. You can't be the proof of heavens. So you have to follow the protocol that the Almighty lays out in the Torah, and that is you go to the Sanhedrin, you ask their vote, and you follow them. And Rabbi Eliezer, again, refuses to concede, and they make the very uh, stark decision to excommunicate him. When you have a rebel, a rogue rabbi, a rogue judge that is not willing to abide by the protocol of the Sanhedrin, they take, they take this matters very seriously. It's a very drastic breach of the way things ought to be. And they decide to excommunicate him. To be excommunicated means you're a total pariah. You're ostracized. No one could talk to you. No one could sit next to you. Your halachic rulings are rendered invalid. Total, a total outcast from the scholarship community. And this is the way it was, essentially, to the day that he died. The greatest sage of the time was now no now persona non grata. He's not welcome amongst the rest of the sages. And the Talmud tells uh, what happened here in the uh, aftermath of the story. Rabbi Omliel was traveling to Rome at the time in his capacity as prince of the nation. And he had rendered this ruling against his own brother-in-law, who was the greatest sage of the time. And now he's on the ship traveling to Rome to discuss matters of uh, of political need for the nation and the boat and there's like a storm that comes and hits them and the boat's about to to break in the waves and he realizes this is the Almighty's standing up so to speak for the honor of Rabbi Eliezer and he tells God so to speak you know that this is not for my own honor that I'm standing up not for the honor of my household rather so that there should not proliferate disputes amongst the Jewish nation. That's the only reason why I did it. And once he said that, the waters calmed, um, from their, uh, from their gale. For us, for modern ears, it sounds like very, very, you know, excessive. You have a great rabbi. He's clearly right. God agrees with him. Uh, yet, uh, he is kind of the make it, they, they want to kind of make a lesson out of him by, Going to such a, such a drastic degree of totally cutting him out of the circle of the society of sages, uh, but the commentaries explain a few a few things. First of all, what was Rebel Eliezer's argument? He clearly knew this halacha that that the ruling follows the majority. Obviously, he knew that. So why did he not concede? And the answer is. Because at this time, like we've spoken about in the past, even though initially the sages in Yavne were allowed to continue to to exist and to convene, that reprieve did not last forever, and there were times where the Romans were very uneasy with this growing power of the sages of the Council of Yavne, and therefore. The the, the 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 sages found it prudent sometimes to go underground and they split up into different sections and they were hiding out in different places we've told a story in the past about the sages hiding in the in the attic uh because waiting for the wrath of the romans to pass so this episode happened when there was an insufficient quorum in Yavne. There were fewer than 71 sages to comprise a Supreme Court, a Sanhedrin of the Jewish nation. And therefore, Relezer opined that, yes, of course, when there is a complete Sanhedrin, when there's a sufficient quorum, then I have to follow the majority rules. Because there's an insufficient quorum, therefore, I can maintain my opposition to the ruling because this is not our full Sanhedrin, therefore it doesn't follow that same protocol. Whereas Ramadan Amalil said, no, when there is the Nasi here, when there is the president of the Sanhedrin and the prince of the Jewish people, when he's here, that gives us the status of the Sanhedrin, regardless of the insufficient quorum, and therefore the laws of majority rules are still active. And he did not want to yield. It's interesting, until the day he died, he did not yield. Which is why the halacha does not follow him in almost all the cases. Halacha does not follow Rabbi Eliezer because of this episode. Because the sages of the time, who ruling with all the weight ever given to any court by the Torah, with the, with, with the power vested in them by the Almighty, they said no. He's he's not. He's no longer welcome, and his rulings are rendered invalid. I think this does really show us the the severity. Uh, of the problems facing the Jewish nation, they recognized that the reason why all that chaos befell them, the reason why their whole society was upended, was because of factionalism and sectarianism and infighting. And therefore, the primary objective of the sages of Yavne was to get rid of any dissent, to try to create unity. And in fact, the two streams that we talked about, the Beishama and Beishil, those two parallel academies that existed for 100 years, they ended in Yavna. They spent years in Yavna finalizing the Sanhedrin, we're all together now again. And there was Beishama, there was and now there's only going to be one. And they spent years arguing out the various areas of disagreement between Beishama and Hillel, and they reached Halakha, where Halakha follows Beis Hillel in the majority of cases, with some exceptions. And again, that that was the focus of the people of the time. And therefore, in order to not allow uh, dissent to brew, Rabbi Gamaliel felt, and he is historically vindicated, uh, that even his own brother, even the greatest sage of the time, uh, if he is going to be potentially a cause for uh, fragmentation amongst the Jewish people again, he has to be excommunicated. Now, okay, so there's a, there's a few epilogues to this story. So the first epilogue is brought down in the actual Talmud in Bab Matziah. It says that Rabbi Eliezer's wife, she's caught in the middle of this because she's the sister of Ram Gamliel and she's the wife of Rabbi Eliezer. So she wants both, she wants peace more than anyone else. And she is concerned that what's going to be if Rebel Ezra pours out his heart to god her brother is going to be very much in danger that's what that's what her concern is because greatest torah sage and if he kind of pours out his heart to the almighty and bewails what they did to him even if what they did to him was proper doesn't matter his if his feelings are fully expressed in prayer to god her brother's done she knows that. And therefore, every day she would intervene his prayer. There was a certain prayer. It's called falling on the head. the ha-payim. Alternative called a Certain prayer that you say on most days, but not in holidays, not on festivals, not on Rosh Chodesh, not on special days. But most days you do say it. And... But that's a prayer you fall in your head, and it's a very emotional prayer. It's, uh, we quote, uh, King David, he's crying, and it's, it's, it's supposed to be a very evocative prayer. And she knows if her brother says that, if, if her husband says that then her brother is, is in big time trouble. So every day, she would stop him from saying the prayer. So no, 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 not today, not today, not today. She would always be there, making sure, wa- watching when he's about to do that, she would stop him. And one day, she thought it was Rosh Chodesh. She thought it was the first day of the month. that we know the first day of the month could be one of two days because lunar month is 29 and a half days. So sometimes it's Jews to 29, sometimes it's Jews to 30. So she got the days confused and she thought it was Rosh Chodesh and therefore it's Rosh Chodesh. You don't say Tachnun anyhow. So she didn't intervene. And it turns out it wasn't Rosh Chodesh. The following day was Rosh Chodesh. And he did say the prayer and she's like, oh gosh, she can't believe what happened. And indeed that day her brother died. That's what the Talmud says. Because he was allowed uh, to say that prayer, he uh, poured out his house to the Almighty and she realizes what's happened and she says, you killed my brother. And indeed, they started hearing announcements the Nasi has passed away. Uh, that's the first epilogue of the story. The second epilogue of the story is brought down in Sanhedrin on page 68a. And it comes in kind of uh, from a different angle. It comes in because... Talmud is talking about um, various uh, practices that were common amongst the idolaters that are prohibited. It's a whole section of Talmud dealing with idolatry and various kinds of idolatry and what's allowed, what's not allowed. And there was one obscure um, area that no one seemed to know the answer to. And that's, that's how it comes into the story. But regardless, it tells that when Rabbi Lezer was ill – his students came to visit him. And of course, his most famous student is Rabbi Kiva. And they came in to sit down and to talk to him, but again, because he was a pariah, because he was community, they could not sit within four cubits. They had to sit about eight feet away from him. And the story is told in Talmud that he says to them, he sees them and he says, Well, why'd you come? Well, they respond, he came to study Torah. Well, why didn't he come till now? He said, oh, we didn't have enough time. So they tell him, we were busy. That's why we only came now. And then he makes a pronouncement, which terrifies everyone in the room. He says to him, I will be shocked if any of you die a natural death. And they hear that, and of course that terrifies them. And Rabbi Hiva pipes up and says, well, what about me? How is, what's my death? What's my future demise going to look like? And he, maybe, will I be spirit? Will I at least have a natural death? And he tells them, no, your death will be even worse than everyone else's. That's what he tells them. And then he starts rebuking them. He lifts up his two hands And he says, my two hands, my two arms are like two Torah scrolls that are about to be closed. You know, when you have a Torah scroll, you're about to close it, about to roll it up, about to put it away. That's what it says. He knew he recognized that his time to pass is coming. Uh, And he says to them, "Uh, there's so much Torah within me, but no one seems to be asking me any questions. And then he says, I studied so much Torah for my teachers, but the amount that they knew compared to what I knew – like I reduced from them, so to speak, like a dog lapping up from the sea. How much water does the dog slurp up? Very little compared to how much. This, that's what it was like, me studying for my teacher. And when I taught, I had so much Torah, but no one came to, the only amount of diminishment, so to speak, of my Torah that was passed on to the next generation is like dipping a, uh, a brush into a jar of paint. How much paint comes out? Very little compared to how much is in the, is in the jar. And not only that, he starts to list his Torah prowess. I know 300 laws in a, in a very obscure case of leprosy, of, of, um, of Tsaras. No one asked me any questions about that. And I know 300 or even 3,000 laws about Natias uh, Kishuin, which is, this, this is how it comes into the Talmud, about planting cucumbers, What does that mean? It means there were certain incantations people used to say, and they would plant cucumbers, they would do some magic trick with cucumbers. I know 300 laws relating to that, or maybe even 3,000 laws, and no one asked me a question besides Verbativa once asked me a question about it. And he's telling them, like, this is the amount of Torah that's going to be lost. So they start peppering him with questions about various laws of purity and impurity. And finally, amidst one question, uh, they asked him about a certain uh, item is it pure, is it impure? And his final words were pure, and he said pure, and his soul departed in purity. That's what the Talmud says. And they got up quickly and they announced to everyone, okay, the excommunication has been annulled, the excommunication has been annulled. That's the end of the story. If it was not annulled, they would have to bury him in a separate place, like even, even bury him away from everyone else. Uh, but again, we see he is lauded as one of the great uh, sages of his era. And this story, I think, does really show about the, the gallantry, uh, of his character, uh, but also about the times that he lived at, very challenging times where the future of the Jewish people was not guaranteed. And the decision was made to try to remove dissent and to unify the nation as much as possible. Previously, there were so many different groups and factions and so much sects and sectarianism now is a time for unity and if there's going to be a threat to unity it has to quickly be isolated because that could spread like a cancerous tumor and that would maybe devastate the Jewish nation as they're uh, in their frailty as they're trying to rebuild that's this character Rabbi Eliezer of course he's mentioned hundreds and hundreds of times in the Mishnah and uh but these two stories or this one really long story really uh is the most significant episode of his time of his life and considered to be one of the episodes that really that that, that, that exemplify what was the objective of the sages at the end of the first century so let's look at his lesson uh he says three themes, and if you actually count them, it seems like a great deal more than three things. So there's various different answers. Uh, one of the answers is, is that the first two are connected. To have a good friend hinges upon not getting angry. If you're quick-tempered, you can't really have great friends. Uh, that's the first answer. The second answer is that no, the first three things he used to say all the time and the last thing he would say only occasionally, the first three were his mantras, were his aphorisms. Alternatively, alternately, there are two sets of three things. Uh, And the commentaries explain, what's this idea of three things? Uh, And the answer is given that there's really three different areas in someone's life where they need to achieve excellence, to be complete, to be perfect. Number one, their own self, their identity, who they are as an individual. Number two, how they interact with other people. And number three, finally, how they interact with the Almighty. And all character falls into one of those three groups. And therefore, when they're talking about three themes, the commentaries explain each one of the, each one of these three things are broken down to their lessons to achieve mastery and greatness in these three important areas of life. So what are these three things? So it begins with, let the honor of your friend be as dear to you as your own honor. If we hearken back to Rabbi Eliezer's conclusion, his takeaway from the mission, that Rabbi Yochanan sent his students upon, he said that the most important character is to have a good eye. As we explained, good eye means to be invested in the betterment of your fellow, to, to view them the way you want to view, the way you view yourself. It's like the ultimate manifestation of love your fellow as yourself. View them the way you view yourself. Along these lines, he says, again, parallel, par- parallel to that, Having a good eye, how is that manifested? How do you achieve that you view your fellow the same way you view yourself? By trying to always looking at how do I improve their status? How do I make sure that their honor is upheld and amplified? If you do that, you will be on your way to achieving this good eye that really is the gateway character trait that will achieve uh, greatness in all areas of life. Uh, along those lines, of course, it's the next thing. Don't get angry. If you get angry, if you're quick to anger, if you're prone to being angry, uh, then that shows that you are you don't view other people the same way you view yourself. You don't love others as yourself. You're not invested in the betterment of other people because you don't get angry at yourself so quickly. Uh, the only time you're willing to get angry at yourself is when you do something really, really bad. You're not prone to anger at yourself. Don't be prone to anger at other people. If you have an evil eye, then you will be prone to anger. If you have a good eye, then uh, you will not become easily angered. Now, if we wanted to talk about uh, the Talmud's teaching on anger, we could be here all day because the Talmud views anger as one of the worst character traits. Just a sampling. Uh, Someone who gets angry, it's as if they do idolatry which is, again, the, the worst thing. It's total repudiation of God. <laughs> whomever gets angry, all different manners of purgatory will control him, which means all kinds of sin will result from that. But I want to look at the Rebbeinu yonas commentary. He says something very, very insightful. He says, if you actually read it, it doesn't say don't get angry. What it says is don't get angry easily. Don't be prone to, ang- to, de- to get angry, which means that obviously it's opening the door for someone getting angry, having a temper in certain instances, instances, under certain circumstances. Don't be prone to anger, but under certain circumstances, anger maybe is appropriate. So he kind of lays out the parameters of prop how to get angry properly. So he begins with an introduction. He says, you should know it's well known that anger is the worst midah, the worst characteristic, but it's quite natural. Uh, people are drawn to it. And there are times where maybe it's even appropriate. And therefore warns Rabbi Eliezer in the Mishnah, don't get angry easily. Don't be prone to anger. First thing he says you should do, you have to evaluate the merits of anger. You have to evaluate the merit. You have to weigh on the scales. Is this the right time to get angry? Is this the wrong time to get angry? You have to kind of approach it with a cost benefit analysis and say, okay, what are the merits? What are the drawbacks? And he says like this, if there's any drawbacks, if you can find any reason why it's not appropriate, then you should discard the anger. Don't get it. It's it's not appropriate. Only if you can find no reason why anger is not suitable for the situation, only then shall you get angry. Which again shows you obviously have to have total command over your, over your emotions and over your outbursts. You have to be able to be able to coolly evaluate the situation to say, okay, what's appropriate and what's not. Uh, we always talk about musr, about uh, being, uh, synonymous with self-control. When someone gets angry, it's not necessarily indicative of a lack of self-control. Because maybe they followed Rabbi, Rabbi Yonah's guide and they got angry because they evaluated the situation. And indeed, what he's describing is someone who is, who is in total control over their emotions and over their anger and they have just evaluated the situation and, and concluded that anger is appropriate. But even then, don't... Let it spurt out. Be very deliberate in how you dispense it. I think this is a good idea for uh, parents, certainly leaders of all types. Um, sometimes it's appropriate to get angry because you're trying to teach a lesson. You're trying to impart something with your child or whatever. But if it's an emotional reaction, then it's it's improper. Then you're being prone to anger. If it's weighted and evaluated and and. and you concluded that this is the right thing to do and you're able to kind of exhibit the anger, even though you really aren't feeling anger, but you're exhibiting anger and you're doing it in a very deliberate manner, then it could be the right thing to do. We see in the Torah, Moshe gets angry several times. This is what is happening over here. Moshe is in Andrew, because he is recognizing that is the best thing that the people need, and as someone who is selflessly dedicated towards the betterment of the Jewish people, he realizes that they need this rebuke in this time, in this way, in this manner, and he delivers it as a leader ought to do. I was once—I remember—I was in yeshiva, and uh, in 2004, a long time ago, and I remember hearing from a fellow student about something that they witnessed in the office of the Rosh Yeshiva, of the head of the yeshiva. There was some, I don't, I don't know what happened, but some student did some infraction and the Rashiva was telling this other student that I was speaking to, he said, don't call him in yet. I'm not, I'm not angry yet. He had to like kind of, he was like trying to get himself angry enough to be able to kind of lay it thick on the student, but he was, he was like trying to, he was, it's not the opposite. He wasn't trying to minimize anger. He was trying to kind of create it. To be able to teach the lesson that he wanted to teach. I don't know what the bachelorette, I remember this kind of struck me. He's like, he tells me, no, 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 I'm not ready for it. I'm not ready for it. I need to kind of build it up so that way I could dispense it properly. Which, of course, to us, it's always the opposite. Let's like, say, you know, we, 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 we're, we are prone to anger or we tend to be prone to, 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 to being angry. And here we're being told, no, you got to harness it. Obviously, again, the, the mistake we can always make with Pirkei Avos is like, oh, yeah, okay, fine. Let's move on to the next thing. This is what he said, the great Yezer. A hundred years of of Torah wisdom distilled into three sentences. Obviously, it's a lifetime's work, but we have to move on. And then he adds. He adds an amazing teaching of the Talmud in the book of Erevan on page 65b. So it's, again, one sentence and just really shines light on everything. It says there's three ways to determine a person's true character. Bitiso, picasso, ubicoso, which is a nice play in words. Tiso, his pocket, caso, his anger, caso's anger, and koso is his cup when he drinks. If you want to know someone's true character, you examine them in three instances. When their money's at stake, when they're angry, and when they're drunk. A person can be very adept at concealing their true character. But when it comes to their money, their truth comes out. When it comes to their anger, when they're really angry, we see how they behave, how they truly behave. When they're drunk, all the inhibitions are removed. That's who they really are. That's what the Talmud says. I was in uh, I was in New York um, a few weeks ago, and uh, I happened to have talked to my father about some individual in the neighborhood, and he said that my father said that his relationship with this person soured. Some time ago, not in sour, but it, it changed forever. Why? What happened? There was an individual came from Israel who was, had a Torah institution in Israel. Friends with my father came to fundraise, which is quite common. Few, the, the major Torah institutions in the world are right now presently in Israel. There's some of them here, of course, but mo- most of them are in Israel. And most of the money is here so they came fundraising it's not quite common uh, the heads of the yeshiva come fundraising in America and the heads of institutions etc so he asked, came to my father and my father gave him a donation of course but he says you know this person he's telling he's trying to help him who we to go to this person is such a friendly guy and he's very 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 wealthy and I'm sure he'll be, give you quite generously so he sent him to this guy so this guy came back to my my father and this person I know who he is I'm not going to tell you who he is but I know who he is and he's a very soft-spoken, very pleasant, very kind of uh, noble person. And my father said that this person said, test my father." He's like, "Don't you ever do that again? Don't you ever send someone to come fundraise with me?" So he told my father. And he's like, "Ever since then, their their kind of relationship has been kind of chilly." And he's like, "He's like I came out of the blue, Like to me, like this is what the 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 Talmud's telling us. Someone could could be a very noble person, but." When their money is at stake, like something else just is unearthed that we don't normally see, and like that maybe is uh, a window into really their their true character. So, I'm not judging him, but but it, it, I, that story, the way my father told the story. The way my father told the story, it was like it was so out of character. And this is the answer. Sometimes people act out of character because there's a scenario that is unearthing something that's within them. I'm not judging them, of course. God could judge them. But to me, like the the shift in in behavior, because his money was at stake. Uh, And similarly, when someone gets angry, again, that's what Rabinio brings in. There are some instances when someone gets angry. But when someone gets angry, we see are do, are they unhinged? Do they lose it and go crazy and start smashing things with baseball bats, even though they're normally calm? Uh, or are they like a very not pretty drunk? Some people when they get drunk, they you know there's something there's some kind of beast that's unleashed within them, uh, and that uh, that is a window into someone's true character. Uh, now again. It's important for us to not judge other people here because it's very easy to, that, that, that's not the point. The point is is that specifically with respect to 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 anger in, in the context of our Mishnah with respect to anger, what it means here is that yes, don't be prone to anger. Don't get reflexively ang- angered. Do it with calculation, with moderation, with with planning and that is indeed, Uh, how you become a a, a great person. If you're able to do that, if you're able to overcome, to be able to rein in and harness your anger, to not let it blurt out and to only use it in its proper setting, that indeed is the way, the path, the gateway to greatness. And then he tells us to repent the day before we die. And of course, the question that everyone's going to ask is, okay, let me know when that is. (laughs) Send me the date and I'll know when to repent. Uh, and the commentaries explain that obviously the lesson here is we don't know when we're going to die, and if we don't know when we're going to die, we have to repent all the time. Uh, the Talmud explains, is Talmud quotes a verse in, I believe, in Ecclesiastes, where King Solomon, the author of Ecclesiastes, says, at all times your garments, your clothing should be white, should be pure, i.e., at all times your character... You should have repentance. And the Talmud, in fact, Rabbi Yochum and Zakkai gives a parable. Imagine a king invites all his people to a grand feast. But it doesn't tell them when the feast commences. So everyone gets dressed up and everyone gets beautified and put on all their cosmetics and their nicest clothing. Everyone's getting ready for the feast. And then they realize, well, we don't know when it's starting. Is it starting now? Is it starting tomorrow? Is it starting in a year? Is it starting in a decade? No one knows. So the people that are clever, they are always there at the door ready to go in. They're always making sure they're keeping themselves up and they're making sure they look good and making sure they're taking care of themselves. The fools, they say, well, we don't know when the party's starting. We're going out to, to, to the field. We're going to get ourselves all dirty. And when the, when the feast comes, we'll have enough time to prepare. And then without any preparation, the king says, okay, the feast begins, and the people that were prepared for it are all clean and all ready to go, and the people that are all dirty and sullied, they come in as well, and they're embarrassed, of course, with how they look, but this is how they look, because they did not prepare properly. And the episode concludes, the king says, the king was happy with the people that are clever and was disappointed with the people that were fools, and he says the people that prepared themselves were always ready. They should eat, partake in the meal, partake in the feast, and everyone else, all the fools have to sit and watch them. That's the example. And obviously the lesson to us is that the Almighty created a feast for us. We call that Alamaba. We call it the spiritual world. But we have to be properly prepared and attired for that world, And we have to constantly be ready. We don't know when our time is going to come. We don't know when the door of the ballroom is going to be opened. And when we have to be ushered in, we better make sure that we are ready to meet the King, to meet the Almighty. All our days should be – our clothing should be uh, clean and our days should be consumed with repentance. If we do that, we will be ready when the time comes. Uh, That's one interpretation of this mission. A second interpretation is – that it's never too late. People think, well, you know, I have a whole lifetime of behavior, incendiary behavior that I need to kind of clarify and get out of the way and ah, uh, I'm hopeless. And the answer is no. You repent one day before you die. Even if previously, even if they, previously you re- were in need of repentance, if you repent at the last second, you can be granted uh you to be, you to be granted a, uh, a ticket, a golden ticket to this grand feast. I saw an interesting question here, uh, from the Maharal. The Maharal asked the question, okay, if, if, if the, if the mission is trying to tell us that we should repent always, all day you should repent. You know what it should say? It should say, repent all day, every day. And that way you convey the lesson. Why does it need to tell us, repent the day before you die? Why is it linking the repentance to the death? He says something very, I think, very scary, but very powerful. He says that when someone dies, they're returning their soul to God. You want to make sure that when you're returning your soul to God, you yourself are returning to God. Because if you yourself are returning to God, as your soul is being handed back to God, that is, an insu- is, an, is going to ensure that your soul is going to be granted a good place in heaven, and this is why we have this idea called vidui. Vidui means confession, which we do on Yom Kippur, of course, before Yom Kippur, before the High Holidays. But it's also there's a there's a prayer that you're supposed to say before you die. And my my grandfather had a student that was very shaken up came to visit him. He said to him that he had witnessed a fatal car crash, and he had saw the, seen the person as the person was dying, and he was all, he was all bothered by it. So my grandfather asked him, "Well, did you say vidui with him? Did you say did you say the proper prayer before he's supposed to die with him?" The student says, "No, I don't know vidui by heart. Who knows vidui by heart? He says, Everyone has to know vidui by heart because you never know when your day is going to come." So, uh, what is this vidui? So I want to read to you. So there's a few versions of it. There's a short version. There's a mini version. There's a long version. There's all kinds of versions of it. Of course, we know you're supposed to say the Shema before you die. Uh, that in itself is a declaration of of a pledge of allegiance, so to speak, to God. You want to make sure that that's your last thing that you kind of, your parting message with this world. But there's also a vidui. I want to read to you the vidui here. Uh, so there's a the short version, which is only six words. Tehei, misasi, kapara let my death be an atonement for all my sins. Let my death be an atonement for all my sins. Which is a short, everyone can remember that. Which is a way, again, it's, it's a way to repent right before you die. And even if you don't know when that's coming, or God forbid you encounter someone who's about to die, tell them to say that because that's a way that they could die with repentance. The longer, or the slightly longer version is, Mo I admit to you, the Almighty, the, my God, the God of my forefathers, that my healing is in your hand, my death is also in your hand. May it be the will before you that you should give me a healing. Let, let me get better, a complete healing or full shalima. Almost, however, if I die, let my death be a, an atonement for all my sins, for all my iniquities, for all my wanton sins that I sinned and that I committed before you. Give me a portion in paradise, and let me merit Olam Abba, which is designated for the righteous. And I think that this is kind of maybe hinted in what he's saying. He says that that repent day before you die. Let your death be done amidst repentance, and that way you can return uh, to God with a clean slate. Uh, maybe we could offer another answer quickly of course this could be its own topic uh, on its own that ruminating on someone's pending demise is actually quite helpful for repentance if someone realizes that they're going to die that helps them repent because that kind of rejiggers their priorities puts things in the proper the proper um, context i had a teacher in high school it was a science teacher and a really interesting guy, uh, but he, he used to always say that his goal, his goal in life is to live forever. Why? Because as time progresses, there's more advances in medicine and, and uh, life-saving uh, devices and techniques and procedures and anti-aging and all that. And therefore, the longer you live, the longer you'll end up living. So his goal is to live forever. That was what he used to always say. And then when we, were, I was in 11th grade, he was, we were learning chemistry. We did biology and then earth science and then chemistry. 9th, 10th grade, 9th, 10th, 11th grade. In chemistry, he was almost never in class. Why? Because his wife had tragically contracted a uh, a very harmful cancer. And I remember, like, a change in his attitude, like this kind of realization, no, no, we're not going to live forever. Even if you're even if you Miss Ushelach, you're tapped out of 969. Even if you live for 1,000 years, it's still not forever. And that's just the human condition. So yes, we could extend and hopefully we will. we'll We all live to 150 years old. Great. But even if the years old, it's still finite. That's the, the condition. The uh, inescapable reality of living as a body is that, it's finite. It's fixed. Uh, how long it is, who knows? Again, we don't know. We hope it will be really long and really fruitful and really uh, healthy and really robust in every way. But there is a reality that kind of hits you sometimes when you encounter demise or when you think about it, that you're not going to live forever. And just just that realization, that's like a portal to our repentance because repentance is all about aligning your your priorities in life. To recognize you're coming back to God, to recognize that God is the ultimate fixed priority in the world. And everything else is just a distraction. And of course, it's hard for us to not be distracted because everything is is oriented to make us distracted. That's all by design. The Almighty wants us to be tested. He wants us to have things that are pulling us away from him because otherwise life would not have that same meaning. That's what free will is. Free will is to we have the ability to determine what we're living for, what are our priorities when we encounter the idea of our own death or death that comes close to us, it's a very powerful opportunity to repent because that, again, is going to put things back in their proper place, in their proper context, and help us, it's, it's, it's an aid, it's a tool to, uh, to, to, to repent, which is why a famous verse in Scripture, King Solomon, again, I think it's in Proverbs, tells us, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of celebration. It's more beneficial for you to go pay a shiva call to someone, to go to a funeral than to go to a house of celebration. Why? Because one of them will inspire you to repent, inspire you to live uh with the proper priorities, with a proper realization of what you're living for and how much time you have here, and one won't. And they are even even though it's much more fun to celebrate. But it's much more beneficial for you to dwell, to ruminate, to think a little bit about the fact that your life here in this current configuration, the current way you're constructed is temporary. Finally, the mission concludes uh, with a warning against getting too close or not having proper respect and reverence for the sages. It's like a fire, like a bonfire. If you're close, you get warm, you get too close. You get burned. If you try to be a little bit too lackadaisical, a little too uh, irreverent of the sages, that could be a problem.